All right. Well, if you have your Bibles tonight, I want you to open back up to the book of Matthew. Um, to, we're, we're going to be finishing out chapter 5 today, looking at verses 38 through 48, as we continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And today, um, as we get into this, we're going to be talking about a, well, what I'll say is a hard teaching from Jesus. Um, hence the title, A Challenging Call to Selfless Living. Now, as I always do, I was trying to think of a good sermon intro for this sermon. And although, to be totally honest with you, this sermon has absolutely nothing to do with Mother's Day, mothers are the perfect illustration of selfless living. Now, selflessness is, de- is defined as a person who is concerned more with the well-being of others than with one's own. Who better exemplifies that than a mother? Now, I mean, think about this even from the very beginning stages of motherhood. I was thinking about this, right? And thinking about what mothers go through on behalf of the little children that they're about to, to have. Like, you're sick for weeks, right? I mean, you, you feel bad. So many of them have morning sickness, and they're throwing up all the time, and, and, and you're, you're uncomfortable, and you're hot, and your body has changes and never really goes back to the way it was before. And then you get to the end, and you go through what has to be just, just a pain. I will say kudos to mothers, and I am so glad that God chose you and not me. For that process. <laughs> but I mean, think about this. You know, a mother, they, they forego social gatherings because their babies need them. They often put their careers on hold and stay home um, to raise their kids. Um, they endure countless hours of crying and whining, and, and they spend all that time consoling their kids with patience, teaching them along the way. They willingly endure, many of them, postpartum hormonal changes that mess with their emotions. As kids get older, and even when they don't, and they know better, they have to deal with attitudes and anger that just seems to get bigger as the years go on sometimes. Um, moms endure a lot, but they willingly do it, putting their family's needs before their own day in and day out, month after month, year after year. And the amazing thing about mothers is that they, if they had to do it all over again, they would. Because that's how much they love their children and how much they love their family. That's what's been called and really dubbed a mother's love, which is honestly one of the most powerful forces, in my opinion, in the entire world. And I will say for mothers, I am extremely, extremely grateful for you, and kids better be too, because it was left up to us alone to raise them. I think some of our kids would have a different experience in life. Wouldn't you agree, Doug? <laughs> Now, as we'll see today, what mothers exemplify so well in their lives really is truly a call that Jesus has placed on all of us to follow, which is his example of selfless love, showing God's love to the world around us that quite honestly, most of the time, does not deserve it. And living a life that is selfless, thinking of others, people, putting them before ourselves, is something that is not easy. It's something that definitely goes against our very nature as humans. And that's kind of the focus of what we're going to be talking about here tonight. So let's go ahead and read our verses, Matthew 5, chapter, um, chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. And it says this, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. 
If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If your suit in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this night. Thank you so much just for this opportunity to be in your word and and just for the teaching directly from the mouth of our Savior. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I just pray that you would remove any distractions from this place. Lord, whatever's going on later, whatever went on earlier today, let let us put it aside, God, just for these next moments that we can give you our undivided attention for the purpose of you working in our hearts and our minds. God, I recognize and I know that my words can change nothing. But Holy Spirit, as you move, as you speak, as you press the hearts and minds of individuals, God, you can change lives. And I, that's my prayer tonight, God, that we would, just, we would leave this place looking a little bit more like Jesus than when we walked in. So God, be glorified in this service. Just use me as your tool to speak to your people. And I just pray these things in the precious name of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So as I said, um, we're going to continue tonight um, in chapter, we end up chapter 5 here, and we're going to be finishing, or really continuing in this um, idea of the Sermon on the Mount, which again, if you remember what the Sermon on the Mount, the reason it's called that is because Jesus was teaching on a mountainside, um, to a mountainside full of people up on north of Israel by the Sea of Galilee, giving probably what's known as his most famous sermon, really, to these People And what we've been dealing with really for a huge portion of chapter 5, certainly over the last number of weeks, is Jesus really focusing in on the law of Moses that Israel was kind of accustomed to living under during that time. Um, they, they functioned under this and um, these, these commands that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai all them years before, and this was kind of, is what kind of governed them as a people, if you will. It, it, it helped them have a, um, a government that had civil order. It had laws that were for the government, how they, how they dealt with people, and they had laws as far as how people were to live in their own individual life. But since the laws were originally given to Moses by this particular time, which was centuries later, the laws had really taken on a life of their own, I guess to say, in a lot of ways to where what they were actually teaching in Jesus' day had really strayed quite a ways from God's original intent when he gave those laws through Moses all those years before. And what he really deals with in our verses today centers around this idea of willingly giving up our personal rights for the purpose of showing God's love to one another, even when those others really don't deserve it. Hence the title of the message. 
It's a challenging call, and I don't pretend it to be anything else, because the words that we see here are, are definitely um, hard to swallow at times. And so, verse 38, he says, again, you, you have heard it said, and again, what the, the people of Jesus' day were hearing from the teachers were one thing, and what they actually meant were another. So every time we see that, you have heard it said, he's speaking of what they had been being taught by these religious leaders. And he said, the punishment much matched the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the, and the idea with, of this law was that for, uh, was for fair retribution of some problem that was fair on both sides, right? So if somebody lost $10, you couldn't sue them for $500, right? If, if somebody, you know, did whatever you couldn't um like comp the compensation couldn't be more than what was actually taken so it was kind of a fair law for the offender and the one that was offended against was kind of the idea of this law and these came from two different passages leviticus chapter 24 verses 19 through 20 that says this anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted a fracture for a fracture an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth whatever anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind and again in Exodus chapter 21 verses 22 through 25 um, Moses gives an example now suppose two men are fighting and in the process they accidentally strike a pregnant woman so she gives birth prematurely if no further injury results the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands and the judges and the judges approve but if there is further injury the punishment much matched must must match the injury a life for a life an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth a hand for a hand a foot for a foot a burn for a burn a wound for a wound a bruise for a bruise you get the idea it was an equal payment. If murder happened, death was the result. If a broken leg happened, guess what? <laughs> yeah, so if you wonder what God's thoughts were on capital punishment, at least back then, which God's same yesterday, today, and forever, my guess is there's not a lot different, but uh, you, you can see it here that uh, justice is something that God's serious about. But it's fair justice that God is serious about. Now, what has to be understood about these verses, and really all of these in context that I just read, are that the laws that are spoken here are how local magistrates were supposed to handle civil cases that came to court to be judged. And so these, these judges, if you will, had to, when, when a court case actually came to them, God's word demanded that they do these this way. And this is exactly how you're supposed to try these cases. There was no opinions, there were no whatever, you know, was accustomed to the area or to the country or whatever. God's law gave them very specific instructions for cases that came to the court. If an injury or a death was caused maliciously by an, infant, by an offender when they went to court, if they were found guilty, um, this is the way the punishment was ha- would, would happen. Now, with all of these, an important kind of differentiation that needs to be made is the difference between how civil law and personal issues between two parties were handled. And so the law really was focused on the court itself, but there was no mandate that said that a person must take somebody to court. Does that make sense? So just because this was the law when they got to court, what Jesus is kind of alluding to here is just because that's the law in court doesn't mean you have to actually take the person to court. You can show grace before then and kind of deal with it yourself outside of court, if you will. 
Now, again, when Jesus said this law, I'm sure their minds would have went to the worst case scenario. Um, But what Jesus says next to me is interesting. So if you look at verse 39, this is the example he gave of this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say do not risk an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, he says, turn to them the other also. Now, this is a cultural thing you have to understand, right? This wasn't some guy walking up to somebody and clubbing them upside the face. What this was, this was a person that would take the back of their right hand and backhand somebody on their right cheek. And what this was at the time was something that would have been an absolute, complete insult from one person to another. It would have been like a degrading thing. Like if you've seen one of those movies um, of old, like one of these English guys pulls his glove off and just kind of smacks the guy upside the face just to kind of insult him, if you will. That's kind of the idea here. It, It was an insult, not so much something that was meant to injure or to harm. See, here Jesus was not talking about an, a real act of violence that was meant to injure, but merely an, an act of disrespect or insult. Now, as we think about what Jesus was saying here, I want to talk about some things that Jesus is not saying in this passage of Scripture. Because if you've heard this before, um, you may have heard some different things. He was not saying that we should allow people to physically harm us or our loved ones, without any defense whatsoever. That's not the point of what Jesus was saying. If that was, he would have used a different example with a more severe thing. This isn't talking about somebody taking a crowbar and beating you upside the head with it. That's not what Jesus is speaking of here. He's speaking of a direct insult to a person's character, not a injury or bodily harm to you or to one of your loved ones. So um, putting up a defense when somebody's literally trying to hurt you is not what Jesus is saying, that we should just let people hurt us. He was also not saying that evil should never be resisted. In fact, Jesus went and turned money tables over in the temple. He stood directly against the evil practices of religious elites that were um, destroying the society. Jesus stood against evil, and there's definitely a place in society for Christians to stand up against evil, and we should. However, how we do that matters a lot. What we can't do is stoop to the lows that evil people do in their attempt to bring justice to whatever they think justice is. And he was also not saying that there is never, there is never a place for punishment or retribution in society. This is not a call for Christians to be doormats that are constantly walked on or abused. This, is, this and the rest of his points really that are given are us um, showing grace to people. It's the idea of Christians extending grace to others. What Jesus is simply saying here was that when it comes to matters of our personal pride being offended instead of retaliating toward the offender, we should simply turn the other cheek and show them grace instead. Because if the only thing that was injured in the confrontation was our pride, it is not worth us retaliating and sinning on our behalf, was kind of the idea of what Jesus was talking about in this first one. So now we get to the second one in verse 40. He says, if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Now most of yours will say a tunic and a cloak. Now the tunic was the undergarment and the cloak was the outer garment or the robe, if you will. Now what's interesting about what's said here is the original law was really of this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 22. 
verses 26 through 27, and it says this, If you take your neighbor's cloak as security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out to me for help, then I, then, then I will hear, and for I am a merciful God. So the idea was this. A, a, a person had personal rights that could not be infringed on in Jewish law. One of these was their outer cloak. You could not take that as collateral and keep it. Because in their time, most of them only had one, and in the region it would get cold at night. If they didn't have that, they would freeze, right? And so part of the Jewish law said that you cannot take a person's cloak. But here Jesus flips this, and it says if a person sues you for your tunic, just offer them the cloak as well. Now, again, I really don't believe this was as much literal as it was just a... a illustration to make a point. Because what Jesus was not saying was, look, if they want your undergarment, give them your coat too and walk out naked. That's not what Jesus was saying. The idea was that, again, you're going above and beyond to deal with something so it doesn't have to go to court. So that, you know, that the name of God is not brought down because of a, a conflict that's so petty as something over a piece of clothing. It's kind of the idea here. It's okay to let people have their way sometimes, even if they are dead wrong, especially when it comes to minor offenses of our personal rights. We don't always have to defend ourselves. It's okay just to be like, you know what, take it on the cheek, let them have what they want, and go for the sake of the name of God. The next one is in, again, these are all examples Jesus gives. Verse 41, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Now in context, Israel at this time was under Roman occupation, and Roman soldiers literally had the lawful right to tell any Jewish person, pick up my gear and carry it for one mile. They couldn't make him carry it one more step than one mile, but they could literally make him carry it one full mile. And again, Jesus here was simply saying, you know what? If they tell you to carry a one, just go the extra mile. What's the big deal? You know, and the problem was, that again, this would have been a radical thing for the Jews because they literally hated the Romans. And, you know, I mean, it it would be like somebody taking over, uh, some foreign country taking over us, right? And, And us being like, here, let me help you out. But they looked at the Romans and they, they despised them. They hated them because of the freedoms they took away. And they hated it. It was like a dignity thing. Like they completely lost their dignity when they had to carry this gear for this Roman dog that was occupying their country. And they hated this idea. It was just like the worst thing in the world for them to have to do. And again, Jesus is just like, look, is, is your dignity really worth that much? For you to carry it that exact one mile and just throw it down and look at him in a huff and walk away? He's like, that's not how God's people act. Just go the extra mile. And again there in verse 42, he says, Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Here Jesus is furthering the point that he's already made with the other illustrations, which is that Christians ought to have the added, an attitude of grace and mercy and charity towards people, even and especially people who really haven't earned it. In this example, Jesus said that we ought to willingly let go of what's considered basically to be the most basic necessity for people, which is our resources, our money. It's the idea of loaning a person something that um, it will meet a need that they have. He says, somebody comes to you and needs to borrow money, just give it to them. What's the big deal? 
Again, is Jesus saying that there's never a circumstance that we should withhold it? No, I don't think he's saying that at all. Like, if somebody came to us and wanted money to go buy drugs, obviously it's not a good thing for us to loan them money to go buy drugs, right? I mean, we have to use common sense. I mean, understand, Jesus is giving an example for simply for us to, to willingly give up our right for the sake of others, for the, for the, for the namesake of the Lord and, and, and honoring him, but he's not saying that we should inhibit people sinning by giving them money. So if a person, for instance, is lazy and never wants to do what he's supposed to do and go to work, the Bible says that a person who doesn't work is worse than an unbeliever, right? That's what the Bible says. Should we just keep free, free, you know, free, hand, free like freely handing money over to people like that that just don't want to go to work and they come to a handout all the time because they're lazy? Well, no. That's not what Jesus was saying here. He, he was talking about a, a legit case where people are in need whether you like them or whether you don't, whether it's a person that irritates you or not, just be a godly person and say, sure, let me help you out because that's what loving my neighbor is all about. So as we think about just these in general, I mean, think about if, if somebody walked up to you and smacked you upside the head, spit in your face, what do you think would go on on the inside of you? You think you'd be like a kettle pot that was about to go, you know what I mean? And you're holding it and you want to just deck them back, right? I mean, you, you get the picture, right? What if some injustice was done to you or your dignity was diminished in some way? How do you think you would react? Jesus' simple point in these things is for us to simply, you know what? Take a step back, breathe, compose yourself, and quit looking at them as an enemy and instead look at them as one of God's creation that we're meant to reach. That's kind of the idea. Because if we retaliate and pop somebody upside the head, guess what we're not going to be able to do very effectively? Be a good witness to them. And again, this is, this is simply what I, I believe in his most simple terms what Jesus is saying here. Again, these things, even to us, are a little bit radical, but to the first century Jew, these statements of Christ would have sounded absolutely crazy, especially since he didn't end there. He goes on in verse 43 and 44, and again he says, You've heard the law from these religious leaders. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's interesting about this one is the actual law was love your neighbor. That was part of God's law, this idea of Hating your enemies was never part of God's law. That was man's law. That was something that the religious leaders had added over the course of years to where the people were actually taught by this time that we're supposed to love our neighbor, which meant love your fellow Jews, but the Gentiles, and especially these Roman occupiers, it's okay to hate them. In fact, real godly people would hate these people, especially the ones that are persecuting you. The actual law, again, was love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Galatians 5.14, interestingly, says the entire law is fulfilled in a single decree. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law of God was always about loving the people around us and loving him properly. The, The law, in its basic sense, was about love. And these people had completely missed this. Leviticus 19 and verse 18 Again, this is really the word this law originated. It says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
So think about Jesus' command here. He's saying, love your neighbors, love even those who are not your fellow Jews. So yeah, you're supposed to love your Jews, even the ones you don't like. Even those Gentile dogs out there, yep, you need to love them too. Yep, even your Roman occupiers, yep, guess what? You need to love them too. And even the ones that are making you carry their luggage, even the ones that are treating you badly and persecuting you for, for who you are, guess what? You don't, have to, you don't have the right to hate them either. In fact, not only do I want you to love them, I even want you to pray for them. Well, I mean, think about this, right? That's a big demand. I mean, that's a big demand, right? Like, what about their freedoms? What about their dignity as their people? What about their, what about their rights? To these things, Jesus says, there is an extent to which we should willingly just let those things go. For the sake of the kingdom. There's some freedoms that aren't worth fighting over. There are some, there's some dignity, when, when it comes to our dignity, we don't always have to fight over when it comes to our rights. We don't always have to pick a fight over these things. Now, let's bring this to some modern day context here just for a moment. Imagine if Jesus stood before us today and told these words to us in this room regarding what we're seeing right now in our country. God's word's pretty relevant, isn't it? Now, because we have been brought up as free Americans who have had a rebellion against tyranny, freedom at all costs, we have inalienable rights that no one has the authority to take away mindset almost bred into us. You know what I'm talking about, right? These things that Jesus is saying here at first glance are probably rubbing some of us the wrong way. Right? Right? I mean, if, if, you, if you're an American, you've had those attributes bred into you. We have freedoms, and nobody's taking those things away. We have rights, and I'll fight for them. Especially in recent days, as we have watched our freedoms being ripped away one by one, as our society is getting more disgusting and more evil by the day, as more and more people take advantage of one another, as our government is trying to push through anti-God, anti-family, immoral, disgusting laws that threaten our children and the future of our nation, it seems like we're becoming less free every day that passes, doesn't it? Is anybody feeling this besides me? Because of all these things... And more we've dealt with in recent days. If you're like me, you've probably had times where anger has flared up inside of you. You have probably have been tempted to outright wish um, evil or destruction or maybe for God to send a lightning bolt down and just smite them. Just incinerate them, Lord. Get them out of here. They're ruining our lives. They're destroying our society. They're taking our country away. What about our kids? And on the inside, we're just fuming, and we have people in our, you probably have people in your mind right now, and names in your mind right now, that you're going, "Mm, maybe. But if these words of Jesus are still valid today, how does he expect us to respond to our current situation? See, I think if anything, at minimum, these words of Jesus should cause us to stop and do a heart check. Now, do I think that it's okay for us to honestly be disgusted by what we're seeing right now in our society and around the world, frankly? Yeah. I think that's okay. 
I think there's a place for righteous indignation towards evil. But in the midst of this, we cannot forget who this battle really is against. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says, We do not fight against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We have to remember where the source of evil in this world is coming from. We have to remember that the people pushing these things are being controlled by Satan and his evil army. We have to remember that the people we are called to show love to are not the enemy. Satanists. We have to remember this. We have to keep these things in mind. Now again, do these words of Christ mean that we should just sit idly by and let our nation and our society be ripped away and destroyed? No. Absolutely not. But what these words do do is give us some direction and principles to guide our actions and our attitudes. Jesus is not saying here that people should just do nothing against tyranny and evil. He's simply saying that there's a right way and there's a wrong way for us to go about it as God's people. And as we'll see kind of from the rest of these verses, Jesus' main point is that we should always be guided by selfless love towards people that shows them the heart of God, which is mercy and grace. Let's look at verse 45. So right before this again, he says, But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and that way you'll be what? Acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Why should we respond in love and kindness toward others, even our enemies? Because that's the example that God has given us. We're meant to follow him. The rest of verse 45, for he says, For God gives his sunlight on both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Jesus tells us here that if we want to imitate God, we need to do good to people, whether they deserve it or not. We need to do good to good people and good to evil people who do not deserve it. That's not fair. I don't like that one. Anybody feel like that? And have you ever wondered that? Like, why do these evil, evil people prosper so much? I mean, for crying out loud, why don't God send like the, the sunshine and the, and, the, and, the, and the rain and the warm weather to the righteous farmers and those evil cotton pickers? Give them a drought. I mean, you, know, you, ever, you ever felt like, I mean, I'm just being honest. Let's just be real. Why doesn't God do that? Because God's very nature is love. And His mercy extends to all people, whether they deserve it or not. And that's the example that we're meant to follow. Now, we feel those ways because there are things that are evil. There's things that are not right. But in the midst of it, we can't forget... A little verse in Romans chapter 3 that says there is no one righteous, no, not one. Who really is righteous outside of what what we've been given in Christ? Not me. The only righteousness we have is from Jesus. And if God had not shown his grace and his mercy to us before we came to faith in Christ, would we have came to faith in Christ? Nope. So I sure am glad that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. 
shows mercy to the good and to the bad. Because I was one of those evil ones before I came to faith in Christ. Verse 46 and 47, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. I mean, that was a burn to Jews. They hated tax collectors. They were like the scum of the earth. Like, if the only people you're going to love are each other, then, you know, better than them people over there stealing your money. He said, if you're kind to your friends, how are you different than anybody else? Even pagans do that. See, it's easy to be nice to people who are nice to us. It's easy to pray for those who, um, pray for, for the blessings on people who do good. It's easy to respect people in authority who actually have integrity. But it's a whole other thing to be kind to and, and pray for and ask God's blessing on people who are evil. People who don't deserve it. That's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? And yet that's exactly what Jesus is saying for us to do here. And then he makes this incredibly profound statement in verse 48 and says, But you are to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who in the world can do that? Anybody got perfect written all over you? Well, no. Jesus knew that. But it's still the standard that we're supposed to shoot for. See, what this statement should, have, should cause is for, for us to think of as two things. We know we're not perfect, therefore, we should also understand that nobody else is either. There's something we need to realize, and it's this. Non-Christians don't act like Christians, and we shouldn't expect them to. Shoot. A lot of Christians, Christians don't even act like Christians. <laughs> so how would we expect people that don't know Christ to act like Christ when the people who do know Christ, half of them don't act like Christ? We need to keep these things internalized. And it also should lead us to this point that this is something that we cannot do in our own strength. If we're going to follow this incredible call that we've been given here by Jesus, the only way we do this is through the Lord. It's the Spirit of God living in us, giving us the strength to bite our tongues, the strength to hold back our vengeance. The only way is through the Lord. Now, a big question that we should ask in regard to this teaching is this. Why would God, I mean, just think about this. Why would God not want us to rid this world of evil by force? You ever think about that? If evil is the one causing all these things and all this destruction, what's wrong with just getting rid of it? Why not just line them up, get rid of them all? Why not? Be a better place, right? Why shouldn't we get rid of people who are destroying our society? Why shouldn't we demand our rights no matter what? I mean, we have a constitution for crying out loud. Nobody's going to take these things away from us. Why shouldn't we demand our rights? I know I'm being frank, right? But I'm doing this for a reason. How about we ask a better question? Why didn't Jesus get rid of all the evil actors when he was here the first time? I mean, even after he died for our sins and rose again, why did he just set up his throne, get rid of the Romans, get rid of all the people who refused to believe him, and, and, and just have a, a perfect 
paradise on earth with just him and his own. Aren't you glad he didn't do that? Because how many of us wouldn't be here today? How many, how many of us here today would be on a one-way ticket to hell? See, Jesus' goal in life has never been forced compliance. He wants people to come to him by faith. He wants people to see their need for him and actually want to have him as Savior and Lord. He came to save the world from their sins, not from their worldly oppressors. Jesus didn't come so that people could live a cushy life of ease for the few years they live on this planet. He came to offer them eternal life where people could experience eternal blessing in his presence forever. That was the purpose of Christ's coming. And since that point, he's still doing that for the people of this world. There's a reason that he didn't just take his throne and, and, and strike all the Romans dead. Because you know how many Romans, we were talking about this in men's breakfast this morning. You know how many Romans got saved? There's a whole book about it. Romans. A letter to the church at Rome where tons of people were, had given their life to the Lord. Oh, what about what about um, what about those Greeks over in, in Ephesus or or Colossae or Philippi? All those heathens, all them Gentile dogs over there. What if Jesus would have just went zap? You're dead. You're gone. Guess how many of them wouldn't have came in faith in Christ? That wasn't his goal. His the whole reason he came was for the salvation of the world to show mercy and grace to extend mercy and grace. Now, is there coming a day that Jesus is going to come and reign as king? Sure. You know, guess what? In that day, people aren't going to have a choice. They're going to recognize, they're going to recognize him as king if they want to or not. Philippians chapter 2. In that day, guess what? Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. It's going to happen. But until that day... In his patience, he is drawing the lost, unsaved people of this world to himself so that they can receive the same salvation and forgiveness of sins that who has received? If you know Jesus, that's you and me. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus, I believe, big point in this is that that's God's attitude towards people who are clearly his enemies, what should our attitude be? If we're going to take on the mindset of Christ, what should our attitude be? Listen to what, uh, just consider this for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task, us the task, us the task of reconciling people to himself. For God was in Christ, reconciled the world, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who had never sinned, to be an offering for sin so that we could be made right through Christ. When we were yet his enemies, as we'll read in a moment, he did that for us. Questions. Who has God put in charge of showing the world what his grace and mercy are all about? 
Who has God put in charge of that? Are you a Christian? Raise your hand. That's you, and that's me. Who has God left here to be his image bearers to the unsaved people around us? That'd be us. Who has God put in charge of spreading the message of Jesus around the world? That's us too. Can we do this effectively if we're more worried about our rights or our pride or our dignity or our feelings instead of people's salvation? No. Can we do that effectively if we hate people we're called to reach? No. Again, this call is a hard one, isn't it? I mean, this just burns my backside sometimes when I think about this. Because the the sin part of me wants to retaliate. But can I tell you something? What Jesus is asking here, this challenging call to selfless living is nothing that Jesus did not exemplify himself for us. Ask yourself, was Jesus insulted in his life? Yeah. Was Jesus falsely accused of things that he didn't do? Was he treated unjustly? Was he hated? How about, how about persecuted? Did Jesus have his dignity stripped away? Better believe it. Spit in his face, crucified him naked for all the world to see. And yet, what was his response? He endured it willingly. Says, says he was like a sheep silent before his shears. Never even said a word. He endured it willingly and willingly laid down his life in the end. Ask yourself this just hypothetically. Could Jesus have demanded his rights? Well, sure he could. He was God. Did he have the power to get rid of his enemies? Of course he did. I mean, he could have called down fire and incinerated every last one of them if he wanted to. But he didn't. Why? Because he came to save those people, not destroy them. And that includes us. This is what Romans 5 says in verse 6 through 11. When we, put your name there, when, when Brad, put your name there. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us, Sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by his death, by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, he died for us while we were his enemies, we will certainly be saved through his life. And so now we can rejoice in this wonderful new relationship we have with God because of what Jesus has done for us and he has made us friends of God. Whose sin do you think Jesus died for? Ours. While we were sinners, while we were his enemies. See, what Jesus did for us is exactly what he's telling us to do in these verses today, to die to ourselves, to live selflessly to put the salvation of the people around us that need Christ ahead of ourselves. As Romans 12, 1 says, I plead with you to give your bodies to God as living sacrifices because of what he's done for you.
See, it's not that Jesus is just asking us to stand by and, and let the world be overrun by evil. He's simply asking us to think about the eternity of others more than worrying about our own temporary comforts in the present. The, the, the simplicity of what Jesus is saying is that. It's not that we should never stand against evil, but how we do it is important. Instead of despising and cursing the people who are destroying our world, how much more effective would it be if we prayed for them instead? Instead of taking back our nation physically by force, how about we start taking it back spiritually by force? If we want our communities, our state, our nation, our world to be changed, can I tell you something? It's not going to come through government. It's going to come as God gets a hold of hearts one by one by one after another, transforming them. The power of salvation is not guns, it's the gospel. True change in this world will come when the people of God start being the people of God and start showing people of this world the grace and love of God. Our rights are important, but when we pass on from this world, what we're dealing with right now, will any of it matter? Do you think we're going to be thinking about the injustice of our world when we're in heaven? Neither our possessions or our land is going to heaven, only us and the people we reach with the gospel. I'll say, I will say this, and, and, I, and I believe this with all my heart, patriotism is a great thing, and I'm one of them. I love our country. I love our freedoms. But if we ever get to the point where our prosperity as a nation trumps God's kingdom, then we have completely lost sight of God's will for his people. The greatest act of patriotism that we could ever give to this country is to model Christ to the best of our ability and tell as many people about Jesus as that we possibly can. Because when God starts getting a hold of people's hearts, that's when real change happens. If we want to take our country back, let's model Christ. Let's love people. Let's be gracious to people. Let's tell people about Jesus are there times where we need to stand up and speak? Sure. Stand up and be vocal? Absolutely. Do we need to stand in the gap for the most innocent of life that are being stolen and taken? Absolutely. But how we do that is important. We need to do it as people of integrity and character that are still showing the love and mercy of grace of God in the midst of us standing. And as we do, that's when real change in our society is going to happen. And friends, that's the challenging call to selfless living. It's hard, but it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day and just for this word. And it is hard. And God, I, I think of what happens when I'm insulted or when something's not fair or I get taken advantage of or whatever. And it just, man, God, something inside of me just wants to rise up and, and demand my rights, God. And I just, I know I'm not the only one in here. Father, we're, we're human. God, I, I, I'll confess before you and everybody in here, I struggle with this as much as anybody does. But yet, God, your word here reminds us that there's a balance. And in the midst of our frustration, we still need to act like Jesus. In the midst of our frustration, even the people in this world that are evil are still made in the image of God. They're still people that Jesus came and, and died for, and it's our job to go 
tell them about that. And so, God, in the midst of all that's going on in our world, let us remember these words. Give us the grace, dear God, to, to live for you, to give us the grace to, to show the patience and the kindness and to extend mercy as you've extended to us and let us never forget what you've done for us in Christ. Let that be the motivator of our lives. I love you, I thank you, I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me close. Um, we're going to stand and sing a song. And uh, this song...